these poison all these fish because people use the bed nets to fish in Africa and they have all this insecticide and that's bad for the fish and then it's bad for the people who eat the fish. We shouldn't be distributing these to fight malaria because some number of people will will misuse them. And the point of my article was this is ridiculous. These bed nets save easily a million lives every year and have been for for many years. The effects on fish would have to be enormous uh, to outweigh that that first order benefit. If you've ever been surprised by your own thoughts, well, you're not alone. From the time we're born to the time we die, we spend our lives meeting strangers, including the one within. We also spend our lives learning about many of those strangers and turning them into colleagues, friends, and family. In this podcast, host Charlie Bressler talks with fascinating people on their musings about family, community, work, helping others, and getting to know the stranger inside ourselves. Where do we fit in the world we all inhabit together? Charlie Bressler, the co-founder of The Life You Can Save and former president of a large international retail company, investigates ideas that he has been musing on since he obtained his PhD in clinical and social psychology way back in 1984. Well, Dylan, it's really a pleasure to have you on Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. Thank you for agreeing to be here today. We've kind of known each other indirectly for probably 10 or 11 years now, but not not directly. For our listeners, some of whom may not know you, I would really appreciate it if you would go over your background. And you could start at birth or you could start yesterday. So it's purposely an open-ended question. But can you share your background a little bit more about yourself so people get to know you? Sure. So professionally, and I think this is how most people know me, I'm a journalist. I worked for the Washington Post for a few years, and for the last decade, I have been at Vox.com, uh, which I was one of the early employees at. Uh, a bunch of us left the Post to, to start it almost exactly 10 years ago. So I've been writing there. A few years ago, I worked with the team at Vox to start a section called Future Perfect, um, which focuses a lot on global health and animal welfare and sort of other issues that we felt like weren't being covered adequately in the rest of the media. Educationally, I, I did philosophy in college, and so I've long had an interest in ethics. I read Peter Singer at a pretty formative age, and, and I think that has helped lead me to be a vegetarian and, and made me interested in questions about what we, we owe to, to people less fortunate than ourselves. And that led me to Life You Can Save and Give Well and, and the general idea of pledging some section of your income uh, to those causes. So I think that's how you and I interacted. But it's also been a, a theme in my writing over the last uh, decade or more. So although we have this interest in helping the least fortunate people in the world um, and have been involved in effective altruism, what I'm now calling effective hedonism, which we might talk <laughs> about a little bit at the end. I'd really like to focus our interview today on journalism and some of the issues that are more current now. I want to start with a um, quotation or a point of view from one of my heroes, George Orwell, who I think is really relevant to the discussions we're going to have today, and ask you a little bit about the following statement or sense of what Orwell says, where he, he pictures a world in which there is no longer any awareness of the discrepancy between truth and falsehood. How much do you think that applies to the United States today? And what are the implications for journalism? I suppose this question could pretty much take up the rest of the interview if we allowed it to. It could. And, and I should say up front that I think there are people who've devoted their careers to this question. 
my friend Brendan Nyhan, who's a political scientist who has done a lot of work on on fact checking. When when does fact checking work? When does it not work? How do you get people who believe false things to come to believe true things? We have a society where there's a lot of information that is false that is percolating. What I'm not sure about the ways in which that's worse than the situation has long been. I sometimes think about when Orwell was writing about a, in the 1930s when he was a very active journalist. One of the big crises happening in the world was uh, what's now called the Holodomor, uh, the sort of intentional forced famine of Ukrainians and to some degree Cossacks by Stalin. There were a lot of reporters there, and many of them just sort of bought Stalin's line, hook, line, and sinker, Walter Durante being, being the most infamous. And there were some people there who saw what, what was happening clearly and, and tried to get the word, word out. And it wasn't that the truth was nowhere, but it was being sort of shouted down by falsehoods. And I think there have been a lot of moments like that. And so I try to be careful about over-romanticizing the past because I don't feel like I have a very strong sense of, of how much worse things are now. One thing that has changed is that the cost of putting information out there is just much, much lower than it's ever been. And so you're just more able if you're a bad actor. Steve Bannon calls it flooding the zone with shit. And I think, yeah, people have learned that that's a tactic, that, that if you, you put out there Joe Biden is senile, it doesn't matter whether or not Joe Biden is actually senile. Um, that, will, that will go on and, and can take on a life of its own. You promote the idea that the economy is a disaster even when unemployment is near record lows. A lot of people will come to believe that unemployment's a disaster. So I want to be careful about comparative statements because I, I, I really don't know how much worse that is than when there were a smaller set of also very imperfect institutions controlling the flow of information to people. But the low barriers to entry has made it easier for both both good and, and I think more relevantly for this conversation, bad actors to, to come in and sort of influence the broader discourse. I agree with you that it may well be no worse today, and I didn't mean to suggest that it is. Orwell was saying those things as a result of his work in the Spanish Civil War in the 30s and then writing 1984 at a much later date. So this was a major theme about truth and falsehood in 1984, doublethink, as he referred to it. I agree with you. This has been going on for an incredibly long time, but I'm interested in now, what you think the role of a journalist or journalism in general, I'd like you to address both, is in trying to alter the situation, whether it had been back there when Stalin was massacring through famine all the Ukrainians, or whether it's now and what's going on with falsehood. Where do you see journalism playing a role? And you individually, to put you more on the spot, where do you see you playing a role? One thing you learn in journalism is that there are many, many, many different types of journalists and, and that we all, when we're doing our taxes and write journalists under what our occupation is, that encompasses a lot of different things. There are journalists whose job is to be on the sidelines at NFL games and interview players afterwards about why they made this or that move. Uh, there are journalists who spend their days cultivating spies and trying to get information about secret CIA black site prisons or try to get leaked uh, intelligence assessments. There are journalists like me. I spend a lot of my days trying to, to explain social science research uh, to lay audiences. And that's very different from what either of those last two people did. Um, but we, we, we're all under one umbrella. So one point is just that it's, it's a very diverse profession. And I can mostly speak to my little section of it. But, but there are off, lots of other important sections as well. I think it's a lot harder for, for journalists as individual actors to change people's minds than is sometimes imagined. And part of the reason for that is that the media landscape is really fiercely competitive. 
we're coming off of a period from maybe World War II to the invention of Craigslist and around 2002, 2003, where a lot of people had kind of local monopolies in, in news. There's maybe one or two nightly news stations. There's maybe one or two daily newspapers. Everyone in the city subscribed to them. And because they had that kind of monopoly power, they had a lot more independence in what they could say. They wouldn't lose readership if they said something that was unpopular. And, and I think because of that, they kind of had more persuasive power. If I'm going to subscribe to the Chicago Tribune, no matter what, whether or not they say something I like about Mayor Daly, I might be more inclined to see what they say about Mayor Daly and change my mind in response to it. And the market becoming just much more competitive, I think, has, has complicated that. There's a period at one point where it, it felt like Fox News was kind of cutting Trump loose. Um, I think this was after January 6th. They briefly were had sort of pulled back on the idea of defending him no matter what. And very briefly, and I don't say this to defend Fox in any way, but I think like they made a strategic decision that this guy is toast and we got to move on. And they lost a lot of viewership to even more extreme networks like Newsmax or the One America Network. And I think that's that's a dynamic you see in a lot of journalism, that the demand side really matters. If you move too far out of what your viewers or readers or listeners are demanding, they will leave. And that uh, imposes a lot of disciplining power on you. It's not exculpatory, like we're, we're human beings, we're making choices, but it is a business. And I think if you're sort of modeling why different news agencies make the decisions they make, they're making them as businesses that are, that are trying to retain customers. How do I think about it? I try to be realistic about how many people I'm actually reaching. I think I, I would maybe feel different about this if I was on like the Today Show or if I were Joe Rogan, maybe. And I was had an audience of millions and millions of people. I think in that place, your your job is is to try to promote ideas that you think are true to a, a vast number of, of the public. I've never had millions and millions of readers. I've I think the average piece of mine, it gets more in the like the tens of thousands of readers. So I, I try to think of it more as I'm probably only reaching people who already are disposed to care about this issue. Um, but hopefully some subset of them are people in a position to do something about it, uh, whether they're in government or in business or in a grant making role. And so if I write this article about, say, malaria vaccines, my goal is less, how do I change the whole public's view about malaria vaccines and more, how do I get useful information into the hands of people who already care about malaria and might be moved to change their behavior or do something about it if I've brought new information to their attention? That makes it sound like very like calculated and it's often not that calculating. Like I often don't know what the best thing to do with this information is, but I think there's a service you're providing by being a broker of information within a community that cares about a specific issue. And I think that's sort of how I conceive of my my role in trying to to promote truth. That being said, I don't know, there's there's the old saying that we we journalists write the first draft of history. And first drafts are often bad. Um, they're often full of mistakes and they're often incomplete. And I think that's sort of an irreducible part of the job. But one thing I've appreciated as I've gotten older is that I've gotten more licensed to take longer on pieces and, and hopefully make those first drafts a little less bad, a little less flawed. Do you ever consider the possibility, um, given your talent, which just except for argument's sake that you're very talented, exceptionally so, um, you don't have to comment on that. I'll just assert it. Um, based upon my knowledge of you versus other journalists, do you ever consider the possibility that you ought, I'm using that word, uh, 
there advisedly um, that you ought to become more of an activist and try to seek a microphone, a megaphone, a news channel where you'll have more listeners than Vox, where you can have more of an influence on what's going on in the world? One moment where I, I had this thought was at some point when Trump was president, the job of head writer for Fox and Friends came open. I don't know if you remember this, but but Trump would like very reliably watch Fox and Friends in the morning on Fox News. It would sometimes call in with comments and things. And I saw a bunch of journalists passing it around being like, you know, this might be the highest impact journalism job. Uh, we really ought to get it. And so I think that, yeah, there's two parts of your question. One is, should you be aiming for a bigger audience? Another part is, should you be doing sort of activism as opposed to just like straight news journalism? And I think, interestingly, those are a little bit at cross purposes. Um, Let me interrupt you a second. I'm not sure that I see activism and good journalism as different or mutually exclusive, but we can get into that afterwards. I just. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't know that, that I do either. A, but, but I mean, there's a difference between like what Paul Krugman does and what the main economy reporter for The New York Times does. Paul has has his opinions and is very forthright about them. Um, he's not doing sort of just the facts, sort of this is what the Dow did yesterday uh, reporting. Both of which are really valuable. And right. but I think like okay. the just the facts reporting reaches a broader audience because I think people know who Paul is. And so if you know you're gonna disagree with him, you might not read the article. If you know you're gonna agree with him and, and aren't gonna be surprised by what he says, you might not read the article. And you might read the straight news article all the same. Anyway, I think of like audience size as one variable, but there are a lot of other variables. Media is weird. There there's really just not that many firms, um, especially now. Uh you're talking to me in a in one of the worst weeks for journalism layoffs in in a while. And that's saying something since we've had a lot of really, really bad weeks. The LA Times laid off twenty percent of their staff this week. Sports Illustrated is more or less shutting down. Pitchfork, a music site, is is also being being cut very dramatically. A bunch of Places having smaller cuts, Time Magazine, Business Insider. There's not a lot of places that are growing and financially stable and and are dramatically more popular than Vox. There definitely are some. The New York Times, CNN, maybe the Washington Post, though I, I don't know the current traffic numbers. But, but it's a small group. And so then you get into a point where my answer for why don't I work there is not, not something high-minded. It's just like, well, I have friends who work there and they say they like this thing about it and they don't like this thing about it. And so in terms of being more opinionated or activist in your in your writing, I think it's really important to be honest. And I think I, I sometimes get frustrated when people will write like a straight news article that has like a very clear point of view, but like dress it up like a straight news article. Historically, the deficit has been an issue where, where a lot of newspapers, for whatever reason, feel comfortable doing this. They'll write a very tutty front page piece about how the deficit has grown under the president and no one is responsible enough to cut it as though sort of what should happen to the deficit is is obvious. And this is not like an intense topic of controversy. And there might be reasons people want it to be be greater. I find that kind of writing really dishonest because it's not being straight with readers on where you're coming from as a writer. At the same time, I think if you take a full activist approach it can make you a less credible resource for your readers if they don't think that you're going to tell them something that feels inconvenient. Explain what you mean by inconvenient. Is it inconvenient for you or inconvenient for the reader or who inconvenient for whom? For the cause or, or for the, the thing that we're trying to further. This may be easier with an example. So today I just wrote a short piece about uh, malaria bed nets, which I know is something that uh, Life You Can Save has supported historically. There's a, this right-wing billionaire, Mark Andreessen, who just went on a tirade against bed nets. 
uh, for whatever reason. And his his argument was, you know, these poison all these fish because people use the bed nets to to fish in Africa and they have all this insecticide and that's bad for the fish and that's bad for the people who eat the fish. We shouldn't be distributing these to fight malaria because some number of people will will misuse them. And the point of my article was, this is ridiculous. These bed nets save easily a million lives every year and have been for, for many years. The effects on fish would have to be enormous uh, to outweigh that first order benefit. What I think would be bad is to respond to him and be like, there's nothing bad that happens to fish. Because I don't know. And my my research into this, writing this piece, was no one knows. And there, there just hasn't been enough research to know conclusively what the effects on, on fish and on people who eat fish are. Do I highly doubt that those effects are bad enough to, to overwhelm the good that bed nets do? Of course. And I think that was my main takeaway. But I think part of being straight with people, I would understand if like a, a bed net charity that was trying to fundraise would try to really dismiss the idea that that there are any bad impacts on fish. I'm not saying they do do this, but I think like knowing how charities work, that would make sense as a line for them to take. I think it really doesn't make sense for me to take that line because I am not them. I am a journalist. If there is a serious issue here, I should acknowledge it and not try to explain it away just because it is a counter to the overall point that I'm trying to make. Does that make sense? It makes sense. But I also believe that activists should be like the type of journalist you're describing yourself to be. I mean, if we go back to your original example about Stalin, which happens to be something that is of tremendous interest and concern to me because of my own politics over the years and because I think of the destructiveness of the Communist Party in the 30s and beyond in Western Europe. I also remember my dad being actually at Harvard between 1937 and 1941, where most of the progressive people were quote-unquote communists. And my Mm -hmm. dad was a virulent anti-communist, but thought of himself as progressive. I believe that it's critical for whether you're a nonprofit like The Life You Can Save, or whether you're a socialist like many were in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, to be completely transparent about what things are going on even if it in the short run seems to be hurting your cause. So I think one of the problems that happened in the 30s and is happening now with Democrats, uh, let me just be clear, bring it into the the present, is that people aren't really transparent. So Democrats want to get Biden elected, but they don't want to talk about the real social problems, or I don't mean the real, but many of the social problems that are going on that they haven't been able to fix and why they haven't been able to fix. So In order to be really serving society's benefit, and I think this is what Orwell was getting at, is that transparency, even when it hurts you in the short run because of your cause, be it advancing bed nets or being in advancing socialism or whatever your cause is, that if you're not transparent, be you a journalist, a charity, or just an individual, I think is a really destructive thing. And I think that's what Orwell was talking about, the lack of transparency. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. I do think it's something that the, the media environment selects against, uh, against that kind of honesty. One, uh, I think a potent example I always come back to is I've heard tons of people, especially young people, um, cite this statistic that I think Oxfam came up with, um, that the 100 largest companies in the world are, are responsible for most of climate change. What that number comes from is going through these companies and, and seeing sort of how much is emitted by the products they sell and, and by their own internal operations. A lot of those companies are like coal and oil companies. Like one of the largest companies in the world is ExxonMobil. And so it is in some sense correct that 
if you add up all the oil that that ExxonMobil and Dutch Shell and, and BP and whatever sell and that is then burned, that does explain a lot of climate change. But the takeaway of we just have to influence a couple of corporations and then we'll be good and this won't require adjustments by people outside these corporations, which is, I think, the, the reason that statistic feels attractive to people. It's just totally wrong. Like if we, we shut down emissions from Exxon, we do that by affecting how people like me and you like get gas in our car. And like that might be worth it, but it really will affect our lives. And so I just I, I see a lot of, of memes and stats and things floating around that seem to reflect a kind of self-deception that I think is really, really dangerous. And, and I think I think we're just like vigorously agreeing with each other here. But um, oh, and with Orwell, I think we are. But I think it's. I think it. we may be vigorously agreeing with each other, but I don't think there are that many people in the journalistic community, the political community, or maybe even in the nonprofit community that are vigorously agreeing with us. And I think that, in my opinion, seems like in your opinion, may be a big problem, even if in the short run, being open is a really negative thing. One of the things I think about, Dylan, is the size of the American military budget. It's bigger than the next 10 countries combined. It's a trillion dollars. It's larger than the next 10 countries. I believe I got that fact right. I don't think it's something that Americans think about a lot or they believe it's necessary. But if they look at the fact that 50% of the discretionary spending in the United States is related to the military budget, it seems to me that journalists have not tackled an issue that's very important and very difficult to discuss. Instead, I think the Democratic Party, for example, has been trying to win elections rather than properly educate people about what's going on. And they have their own reasons for that. But I think that seeing journalism and even politics and nonprofits as an educational tool is a really important thing to do. And when you're a good educator, you have to be transparent not only about the upside of what you're advocating, but also the downside. And um, so talking about, for example, okay, what's going to happen if we were to cut the military budget by 10%, 15%, what are the risks? I mean, that kind of journalism seems to me to be more or less missing, at least in the mainstream. Yeah, well, I think you're, what that touches on is, I think, one of the, the biggest biases in journalism that's, that's right out there in the open, which is a bias towards conflict. And, and in some degrees, that's just a bias towards news. Like we write about things when they're newsy, when something is changing, when something is happening. The military budget has been gigantic for a long time and it's it's grown progressively more gigantic. I think you would see more debate around it if Biden or or uh, Speaker of the House or the Senate Majority Leader proposed cutting it really dramatically and they came out with a plan for this and people were talking about it. Then you get headlines because because stuff is happening. People are proposing things. People are responding. And then you can get into a discussion of the actual underlying issues. But we're just not set up as an industry to talk about things that are important, but relatively unchanging. We're systems that react to an input, and that input is news and events. And sometimes the most important things in the world aren't news and events. And I think... When we were starting Vox, this was something we were really concerned about, and we were trying to come up with ways to get around this. And so one idea we had was we wanted to do these things called card stacks. They would be like collections of 10 or 15, like very short, two or 300 word articles on a given topic. So we would have a card stack on like marijuana, 
and it would go into sort of the legal status, how it's changed, status in a bunch of different states. And the idea was this could be kind of permanent and you wouldn't have to update it constantly because it changes occasionally, but it doesn't always change. What we found is that the curse text people wanted to read were about things that were in the news and in the headlines. And so we're constantly changing. And so you did have to update these all the time. And so we were doing that instead of writing new news stories that would get even more readers and and that were better for our business. And so eventually we we sort of abandoned this as as an approach. And I'm glad we experimented. Like that's why you started a new publication is to try new things and, and see what works and see what doesn't. But yeah, I think it was an example of trying to get around this bias and, and trying to figure out a way to to talk about important things that are not as fast moving like the military budget. And I haven't figured out an ideal way around that. I think to some degree, this is what magazines are for. I think of someone like Sarah Stillman uh, at The New Yorker who writes about criminal justice. And so she'll write something about, say, the felony murder rule, which is like if you rob a bank and someone who's robbing the bank with you kills someone, you can be charged for murder even if you didn't pull the trigger or weren't involved in the murder. That's been part of U.S. common law I think for like over a century and it's right out there in the open and it took her saying like this is a story this is something and writing about it for people to talk about it again so i think smart and very talented journalists can find ways around this but it's it's a real bias and i think a real limitation of of the current way that we do this hi i'm roy head the ceo of development media international you're familiar with ads that sell products like shampoo and beer and medications well we make ads too but our radio and television actually save children's lives. They're scientifically evaluated and they're aired on radio stations in sub-Saharan Africa, encouraging mums to bring their young children and babies suffering from severe diarrhea or malaria or pneumonia for life-saving treatment in community health centers and hospitals. The Life You Can Save has been instrumental in raising funds to support our work. Please visit thelifeyoucansave.org forward slash musings to find out how to save lives. In keeping with that, a friend of mine recently told me that he believes that CNN is one of the biggest supporters of Trump. Not that they're a supporter of Trump, but given how much ink, uh, it's airtime now, we used to say ink, but given <laughs> how much airtime they give to Trump over and over again, because he is a big news story, they're essentially bringing him into American homes at an incredible rate. Uh, what do you think about that? I don't know a ton about professional wrestling, but there's a saying in professional wrestling called kayfabe. K-A-Y-F-A-B-E, which refers to like the fake rivalries between wrestlers that like the Iron Sheik and Hulk Hogan will act like they, they hate each other and are going to fight to the death. It's part of the show. Um, they're, they're professionals. They're, they're acting a part. I'm certainly not the first to make this, this analogy, but there's a degree of kayfabe in the way that CNN in particular deals with Donald Trump. They set themselves up as his, his press nemesis. And so he attacks them and they fire back. And they get lots of coverage about how Trump is attacking them. And Trump gets some mileage with his base about how he's attacking the, the unfair media. And everybody wins. And I don't know how intentional or how part of a master plan this is, but I think it's a real dynamic. And I, I think your friend is right that those kinds of conflicts can be beneficial for, for both sides in a way that can be kind of perverse. It seems to me the implication of what we've been saying is that the current state of journalism is such that it's very difficult for journalists to change the audiences that don't agree with them or aren't in proximal agreement with them. 
But yet, I think when we look back, let's just take the Democratic Party and the Republican Party post-World War II. I'm sure we would agree that there have been major changes in the constituency of those two parties since the election of 1948, when Truman won, and then again in 52, when Eisenhower won and, and Stevenson lost. But there was a very different constituency for those two parties. If journalism didn't play a role or a significant role in that change, why do you think that change has taken place over the last, um, I don't know, is it 60 years? Um, yeah. And so I'm just asking a question. I, don't, I agree with the implication of what we're saying is that journalism hasn't necessarily played a major role, although one could argue that Fox News has played a role. But let me, what do you think? Um, yeah, I don't know that I want to go as strong as it, it didn't play a role. The weaker claim that I might be willing to defend is that I don't know people who played a decisive role while intending to play a decisive role. So when I think about what's happened to the parties since 48, I just got a review copy in the mail of a new book about one speech in 1948 uh, that Hubert Humphrey, who was then mayor of Minneapolis, uh, gave a speech to the, the convention asking Democrats to come out of the darkness of segregation and into the bright light of civil rights which was hugely controversial among the segregationist delegates from the South, came on the heels of Truman desegregating the military, led to Strom Thurmond running as a, a third-party candidate and winning a number of, of Southern states against Truman. I think that was incredibly important. How that percolates out has a lot to do with the media. The convention was not nationally televised. Uh, people in Alabama who hated civil rights were not watching Hubert Humphrey in real time and getting really mad. They were reading about it in the newspaper the day after. They were reading about it in newsletters from, from local politicians and things. And I think the question is, where do you point there? Is it, is it a, a effect of the journalists transmitting that information or is it the actual changes and, and what the leaders of the party stood for and people in various parts of the country responding to those changes and those changes themselves, I think, were an effect of political calculation, of pressure from activists. I think people like Philip Randolph with the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters played a huge role in, in pushing Democrats to, to embrace civil rights more strongly. I'm inclined to tell a story that's more about people responding to the actual events. But that's just one example. And I think like the medium can obviously be very important. We were talking before we started recording about sort of the Vietnam era. You can sometimes find some like pro-war conservatives who will say that Americans turned on Vietnam because biased journalists were, were way too pessimistic about it. I don't think that's true. But I do think the fact that you had uh, Walter Cronkite going on the news every night and telling people how many people died and broadcasting in vivid color just how, how brutal and pointless this war was did, did change people's minds. And it's, again, hard to sort through causality. Is is that a story where Walter Cronkite is, is changing America's mind, or is that a story where just the facts of this war were changing people's mind and he was a conduit? And I think the answer is it's both, that, that the way the conduit does its job can matter a lot. But in some ways, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing I'm telling a kind of hopeful story for democracy where people see reality and respond to it in various ways and change their voting habits and, and the opinions of their parties. Um, in response to real changes in the world around them, which is kind of how it's supposed to work. And some of what people have gotten rightly concerned about in recent years is if those conduits are no longer transmitting reality cleanly, or there aren't sort of conduits to get to a, a large number of people when things are going really badly, what does that mean? And where does that leave us? 
Well, since you brought up war, I guess I'll move to this subject. I was going to ask you uh, to talk a little bit about free speech um, and t attacks on free speech from the left and the right um, and how you view it. But let me get to that after this question. Given that you talked about Vietnam and the war being on television every night, which was the era that I grew up in, um, being a lot older than you, seeing that on television every night, what about the war in Gaza? How do you feel that the American media is handling the war in Gaza. I now have to confess that I do not watch mainstream news. I haven't since the 2016 election. When I told my wife that night that I wasn't going to watch the news anymore, she didn't believe me, but I actually have stopped. <laughs> I read the Guardian news feed in the morning, mostly because they carry really good soccer news in Europe. <laughs> um, and they're a little bit supposedly progressive. What's your team? Liverpool. <laughs> Not because they're in first place this year, but because I, they've always been my favorite team. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I've been watching Al Jazeera's coverage of the war, and I don't know how different it is than the mainstream coverage, but I'm told it's quite different. So what do you think about the coverage of the war in Gaza, Palestine, Israel? How's that being handled by journalists? Before this war, I would have said that like the preoccupation with this particular conflict is is one of the stranger things about American media that sort of if you zoom out, something like 10, 15 million people live in, in Israel and the occupied territories. There are a lot of countries that size. There are a lot of countries way bigger. Nigeria is more than 10 times bigger. How often do you hear about Nigeria in the news compared to, to Israel-Palestine? And I think some of that is is just, I think... Israel has always had a unique link to the United States. A lot of that America and historical Palestine are the two major places that Ashkenazi Jews fled persecution to move to. Um, so there are, are natural linkages there. But I think my general view was that, that this is kind of this is kind of strange. And um, it seemed to get a lot of coverage because it's always gotten a lot of coverage. This time feels different. The casualties are just like an order of magnitude higher than than any previous conflict like this that we're seeing numbers like 25, 30,000 people for getting famine conditions that I can't remember there ever being. And so my my instinctive grumpiness about this, I think, has subsided into, yes, this is probably the most urgent humanitarian condition around the world right now and it's getting an appropriate amount of attention you and I have both sort of in interacted with the effective altruism community a lot, and there's a framework that often gets tossed around of, of importance, neglectedness, and tractability, that, that if you're looking for sort of causes to focus on, you should work on things that are really important. You can work on things that not a lot of people are working on because then you're, you're likelier to have more of an impact. And you should work on things where, where your intervention can really make a difference, where they're, it's really tractable. I think what's happening there right now is really important. It is not neglected. It is, it is one of the top news stories around the world, and, and lots and lots of people are working on it. And it seems just incredibly intractable. And where the parties are now, I don't know how you get to a place where Israelis' reasonable fear of something like October 7th happening again is, is allayed, and the totally reasonable Palestinian wish for, for statehood and sovereignty and, and, and to the humiliations of occupation is also allayed. In terms of media, I think that sort of the focus on the U.S. role has been a little odd to me. I think there's sometimes an, a, an impression that Israel is just America's puppet and that if Joe Biden told 
Netanyahu to stop, he would stop. And I really don't think that's true. Israel is a really rich country. They take our aid. They don't really need our aid. Even the military aid? You feel they, we could stop the military aid and things wouldn't change? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm interested in your opinion. I think they would probably change a little bit. I, I'm not like a total nihilist on this. And I defer largely to my colleague, Zach Beecham, who's our full-time Israel-Palestine person and, and so knows much more about this than I do. My impression is that within right-wing circles in Israel, this is a topic of a lot of discussion because there's a feeling that taking money from the U.S., uh, hamstrings them and gives the U.S. too much of a vote in what they can do and means that that Biden can call them and say, like, actually, you, you cannot just push everyone in Gaza into Egypt. I'm, I'm not going to let you do that. They don't want to be hamstrung like that. And they want to be able to do things like push everyone in Gaza into Egypt if they want to. And that's really dark. And I think those people are incredibly bad actors. <laughs> but I think they're probably right that that Israel would adapt and get by. It's a very successful country. It has a very large arms industry of its own. There's, yeah, weapon, weapons like the Uzi are world famous for a reason, but the Israelis have a very active munition sector. So I think there's some like degree of American chauvinism in trying to make it about Biden and his proxy Netanyahu, which I don't think is what the relationship is exactly. But beyond that, I don't know. I've probably already said more than I should say about the world's most complicated and contentious conflict. One of the things that came up is the tractability of the problem. I completely agree with you. It seems intractable, whereas massive problems, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa that you and I have been dealing with for years and years about trying to save more children, the, the number of children that are dying un, under five of preventable illnesses, a truly tractable problem. Ending extreme poverty, which if you listen to uh, Michael Fay from Give Directly, could be done almost immediately if we turned our attention to it properly, um, just through cash transfers, of course, he would argue, um, without getting into the details of that um, and not asserting that it's correct, but certainly it's his reasonable point of view, I think, um, that there are all these tractable problems around the world that are for reasons you suggested, not newsworthy because they're not immediate stories. They've been going on for a long time. And although extreme poverty is lessening, it's still prevalent. Death in children under five pregnant women could be completely eliminated, more or less, if we decided we wanted to do it. So I think that you're right, that the tractability of the Palestine-Israel conflict is almost impossible to figure out a way forward for anybody. And you suggest even withdrawing American aid could actually have the opposite effect of what people who might want that to happen are suggesting. And so I think that the tractability of this problem leads us to believe that we should put more coverage in some of the problems in the world that are more tractable, but not newsworthy, which gets to the beginning of our conversation, which is the work that you've been doing and I've been doing a little bit of over the years, which is to try to bring people's attention to the kinds of problems that Peter Singer talks about in The Life You Can Save. We may get a chance to talk a little bit about that at the end of the interview, but I'm also aware that we're getting close to running out of time. <laughs> and I did want to talk to you about your opinion about free speech and attacks on free speech, which is obviously an important area for you, uh, not only as a journalist, but the kind of person that you are. How do you see free speech being attacked do you feel like it's being attacked? I do, but I'm bringing it up for that reason, <laughs> um, both from the left and the right. And we'll I'll just have some follow-up questions, but I'm curious about your answer. 
I would distinguish between free speech as sort of a protection from arbitrary or capricious retaliation for expressing your mind by entities with power, whether that's the government, whether that's your employer, especially employers in academia and journalism, where we have an expectation that those are industries that are producing information and knowledge. And so sort of freedom of expression is especially important. Whether or not you get sort of formal sanction and, and pushback for saying sort of true or reasonable things within those, uh, or just saying anything within those institutions, that's one thing. Then there is, are there sort of vague social pressures amplified by the ease of, ease of mobbing and, and mass feedback on Twitter, email, Facebook, that are constraining the way people feel like they can speak even if they don't get formal sanction. I think on the former, in thinking about formal sanction, there are a few cases that I think are worrying. Colombia banning a couple of pro-Palestinian groups was very alarming to me. I had a, a friend who tweeted out a, a study about sort of riots in the past harming progressive candidates uh, who lost his job because he tweeted that. I think that was ridiculous. At the same time, I think those incidents are fairly rare. And in part, they're rare because when they happen, people get correctly outraged about them. It's impossible not to be affected by the sense that if you, you say the wrong thing, people will mob you and that there's certain topics around sort of race and gender in particular, where if you say the wrong thing, you will get mobbed even more. I think there's more ideological symmetry to this than you might think. I think some of the worst mobbing I've gotten is from conservatives when I said something in favor of gun control. And I think that tends to get less attention among people on kind of the center left, in part because I think it tends to hurt our feelings less. Um, mm -hmm. Like It's almost a badge of honor. Right. Yeah. Like Ben Sassy attacked me for that. And like, I, great. I don't agree with Ben Sassy on basically anything. Godspeed. Whereas if, if people are attacking you as like not really devoted to equality and not really devoted to fight discrimination, like it hurts more because you think of yourself as really being devoted to those things. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a real thing. And I think that social media has amplified it. At the same time, I think the distinction between that the sort of the social pressures and the formal sanctions is is important. It's important in part because I think a really bad equilibrium is if people feel that because of the social pressures, they can't say anything controversial, in part because I just don't think that's true. I think you will get pushed back and people will yell at you, but you will be okay. You will not be fired. You will not be, be taken to court. My friend Matt Iglesias sometimes talks about how like the solution is courage. And I think that's that's basically right. You can bemoan the way the discourse has gone in certain ways, the solution is to just say what you want to say and, and know that things will be okay if you do that. So yeah, that's my, my mealy mouth centrist view on this. I don't think it's too mealy mouth. I would say we're, it's different than it was in the early 50s during McCarthyism. But I want to make clear that my own point of view is that the attack on free speech from the right is far more serious yeah. than the f attack on free speech from the left, whether it's institutional, like in the state of Florida, and it involves banning books and, and changing educational uh, requirements and getting rid of teachers, and where I think if you speak your truth, you actually can get fired. Um, so Absolutely. I do think the, the concern from the right. But given that my concern as part of the left is the attacks from the left, where it's not nearly as serious a problem, but is a problem if we go back to the beginning, since we're nearing the end of the interview, and we talk about Stalinism, one of the problems 
that occurred on the left was people did not want to speak out against the Communist Party or against anything that smacked like you were like somehow not behind the cause of socialism. And people kept their mouth shut through the 30s, the purge trials, the famine, uh, the invasion of Hungary, the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, and so on, and such that socialism was in many ways destroyed starting at the beginning of World War I. We don't need to get into that. But I'm focused on the left because I think that the fact that a guy named Coleman Young can't talk about colorblindness without getting blasted from a TED Talk or some of the things that go on in universities that I find out about from friends uh, where you can't teach a book or say things because people tell you you're not a friend of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those are the things I'm concerned about, even though I agree 100% that the big problems are from the other side, the right. But I think, I guess to bring it full force, if we're concerned about the role of progressive movements in changing the world, we better be transparent. We better be honest. We better be allowed for people as good as Coleman Young to be able to talk about colorblindness, even if that idea offends some people. And it's very dangerous if we can't do that. I think this goes back to earlier in our conversation where we were talking about sort of the role of activism and journalism and the need to be straight with your audience and say true things even when they, they might be in the short term inconvenient. Yeah, I think, yeah, uh, movements work best when people within them can be honest with each other and can say hard things. It's been really uh, great to have you on, Dylan. And I know we haven't gotten to talk about the heart of what I've been involved in for 10 years and you've been involved in very much both in terms of the protection of non-human animals and the protection of people uh, living in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, um, where we do have these tractable problems that, that could be solved that we're not solving. So I'd love to uh, have you back and talk about those things if you'd be willing to do that and leave it at that for now. But I encourage people to read Dylan's work on these issues and other issues and once again, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show uh, today. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. Subscribe and join us. Our guests have varied experiences, different points of view, and interesting ideas about what it means to live a well-balanced moral life. We hope you'll share this podcast with those close to you. We'd also like to invite you to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're interested in learning more about the life you can save and the charities we benefit, visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings.